Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. My brothers and sisters, some years ago, when, uh, oh my, it's even decades ago, I come to think of it, who uh, I was teaching at uh, what was then the Utah Valley Community College at the Institute there. And after what I considered to be a particularly inspiring lesson, one of my students came up like this and said, Brother Draper, don't get me wrong, I like your class, but I have to think so hard it makes my brain hurt. Well, I don't want to give anybody a headache today, even though we are, I'm going to have to confess, go pretty deeply into some of the scriptures, but I will consider myself successful if I don't give anyone here any heartburn. So that's my objective. Thinking, I don't mind. Heartburn, I'm concerned about. So with that, let us begin. I have found over the years, as I have read closely the scriptures, that some are frankly baffling. Some I have read over and over and still don't understand what they are saying. However, pondering, praying, meditating, and often studying have brought me insight and understanding. For example, two scriptures I initially found quite baffling were these. The Doctrine and Covenant states concerning Christ that he descended below all things, that he might be in and through all things the light of truth, which truth shineth. That seems to say that Jesus' descent below all things allowed him to illuminate the truth. But what exactly does the second phrase mean? How does truth shine? In another scripture, the Lord castigated Frederick G. Williams for not teaching his children light and truth. Now, I feel comfortable teaching my children truth, but how exactly am I to teach them light? What is light anyway? When I was a sophomore here, I took an astronomy class, and there I found out that light has the properties of a particle and also the properties of a wave, but it technically wasn't either, and therefore I learned a new word, wavicle. I'm not sure what a wavicle is, and I certainly don't understand how to teach it to my children, nor why it's important that I do so. When I was a junior... I ran into the above scriptures that I just mentioned and began to ponder them. And I must confess that I simply could not get my mind around them. Then one day, years later, understanding came. I was one of a number of church education system faculty who was giving a week-long presentation in Tempe, Arizona. On this particular day, I had slipped off to a laundromat where I was to do some much-needed washing. It was while my clothes were drying that I read the Doctrine and Covenants section 93 and again was brought up against light and truth. But this time, something happened. A number of scriptures slotted themselves into place, and I understood. It is this understanding which I have chosen to share with you today. 
We begin with a scripture that is well known by all of us who attend BYU, which is, the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. Quite frankly, that one also baffled me. But I liked the idea of God being associated with glory. Indeed, the concept of glory is very prominent uh, in the scriptures, especially as something bestowed upon the faithful as a reward by God. But what is glory? According to a modern uh, dictionary, it is fame, honor, distinction, or renown. Over many centuries, Christian theologians such as Milton, Jonas, Thomas Aquinas, I should say Johnson, Thomas Aquinas, and C.S. Lewis have defined the term in this very scriptural way. Specifically, glory denoted the appreciation or approval from God, uh, which, uh, which he bestowed upon his followers. It was indeed his favor or respect, which he granted those who met with his divine approbation. The definition given in section 93 does not quite fit with this modern dictionary, at least so far as the glory of God is concerned. His glory, as defined under inspiration, is something associated with his very nature, not just something he bestows upon others. For example, Moses not only shared in the glory of God, but also saw it. The account in Moses, chapter 1, verse 2, states, And he saw God face to face, and he talked with him, and the glory of God was upon Moses. Therefore, and that therefore I think is significant, Moses could endure his presence. There is no doubt that Moses was under God's favor. But this re uh, revelation shows that God's glory was a capacitating agent that made it possible for Moses to bear God's presence. That, however, was not all. Through that power, Moses was endowed with sufficient intellect to understand, to a degree, the nature of God's work. The Lord stated that he would show Moses the workmanship of his hands, but he puts this caveat in there. But on all, but not all, for my work is without end, and also my words, for they never cease. He then explained why he would not show Moses all his works. No man, he says, can behold all my works except he behold my glory, all my glory, and afterwards remain in the flesh on the earth. The scripture suggests that it is the glory, God's glory that gives him the capacity to be all-seeing. Further, the ability to behold all that glory would require such a change in the constitution of a person that he would be more than mortal. The Lord didn't want a more than mortal Moses, and therefore he wasn't willing to show him all his glory, uh, give him all his glory, and show him all his works. Now a, mo now, a modern dictionary gives as a secondary definition of glory a ring or spot of light. Here, glory is associated with radiance. The dictionary gives one the feeling that such association is very limited. That, however, is not the case in a dictionary available to Joseph Smith. According to that dictionary, glory is first and foremost brightness, luster, and splendor. Only in a secondary sense is it fame or praise. 
that dictionary notes that in the scriptural sense, the, the uh, glory is a manifestation of the presence of God. This meaning accords much better with Joseph Smith's use of the term. For example, while recounting his first vision, and we are, most of us are very familiar with this one, but he says, I saw a pillar of light over my head above the brightness of the sun, which gradually descended until it fell upon me. I saw two personages whose glory and brightness defy all description. Writing of this experience, on another occasion, he stated this, I was enwrapped in heavenly vision and saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness. Now listen, surrounded with a brilliant light which eclipsed the sun at noonday. In these passages, glory is associated with radiance. This association fits nicely with that which we see in Doctrine and Covenants section 93. That is, that light is a constituent part of glory. To ancient Israel, one of the important aspects of God was his ability to manifest himself through burning light. Indeed, Israel stood in awe because of the brilliance uh, of a, like a devouring inferno which, uh, took, uh, which uh, sat on the top of Mount Sinai. Moses proclaimed to Israel, the, the Lord thy God is a consuming fire. His presence was then, uh, was more than, I apologize, his presence was manifest on more than one occasion by a pillar of fire, which gave light to Israel, but vexed the Egyptians. A cloud of his glory dwelt upon the tabernacle and filled uh, uh, the court with radiance. Such a phenomenon belongs not only to the past, however, but also belongs to our future. Indeed, the Lord has promised us that this generation shall not pass away until an house shall be built unto the Lord. Now listen. And a cloud shall rest upon it, which cloud shall be even the glory of the Lord, which shall fill the house. Like Moses, Joseph Smith knew well the glory associated with the presence of the Lord. Of his appearance in the Kirtland Temple, Joseph Smith reported, his eyes were a flame of fire, his countenance shone above the brightness of the sun. I wonder what that looks like. Uh, the brightest thing I know is the sun, albeit these spotlights are doing good competition. But the brightest thing I know is the sun. How much brighter than the sun was what Joseph Smith saw? Okay. Well, when he comes a second time, when Jesus comes a second time, we are told that he will be clothed in the brightness of his glory. These are many of the. Uh, these are only a few of the many references suggesting that light or radiance is an important aspect of the glory of God. But I have to ask again, what exactly is light? What am I supposed to teach my children? A careful look at the way the term is used in the scriptures suggests that it is more than mere luminosity. We get a glimpse of the breadth of its meaning uh, that scripture ascribes uh, to the meaning when the Lord states, the light which shineth, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understanding. This phrase defines light as something that makes vision possible, but also as that force which activates and stimulates the intellect. 
Further, the scripture tells us that light is in all things, gives life to all things, and interestingly enough, is the law by which all things are governed. Thus, a more full definition would make light an ever-present and uh, an ever-present life and law-inducing power that, manifest, that manifests itself, among other ways, as normal light, intellectual activity, and living energy that abides in all things. A scripture declares that light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space, and that it is the power of God who sitteth upon his throne, who is in the bosom of eternity, who is in the midst of all things. Therefore, to rephrase for emphasis, these scriptures suggest that the term light is used to describe an aspect of God's power which radiates out from him, expanding with his work and will, enlightening, organizing, capacitating, and quickening, that is, giving life, as it does so. Perhaps, therefore, the best definition would be living and capacitating energy. This idea is expressed in the scripture that states, that which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. The scripture suggests that the continual reception of this living energy endows one with ability, one of which is to draw ever closer to perfection. Thus the Lord states, if your eye be single to my glory, your whole body shall be filled with light and there shall be no darkness in you. And then listen to this. And that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. As one increases in light, he increases in ability until he is able to comprehend all things. One is not, however, glorified in light or is here defined power or energy. Indeed, exaltation is contingent upon the reception of the other all-important element of which glory is composed, namely truth. Section 93 teaches us that he that keepeth his, God's commandments, receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. The glorifying principle is truth. Defining truth, the scripture states that it is, as many of you know, knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come. In other words, truth is knowledge of what a Latter-day Saint, Latter Saint hymn proclaims as the sum of existence. Truth defined in this way is always associated with light because these higher truths can only be acquired through the power or the capacitating force of light. Without the faculty created by light, a fullness of truth could never be gained. For example, if my spiritual mind is pint-sized, I can only hold a pint of truth. If God is to give me more truth, he must also give me the capacity. 
light is the expanding agent. It comes in and expands my mind, as it were, to court-sized, and therefore I can now hold a court of truth. The light could also expand so I could understand a gallon of truth, and so it goes until I am able to understand all things. So light makes it possible, then, for me to receive the larger endowment, an ever-larger endowment of truth. Now, God, God does not give these higher truths to just anyone. Indeed, the acquisition of both light and truth is dependent on obedience. When we say obey, that's kind of a four-letter word, and we get a little nervous about this, but this is a good four-letter word, even though it makes us a little nervous. Oh, what's this obey thing? But the Lord explains why we need to be obedient. Indeed, he says the following, you shall live by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. The explanation seems to be simply this. If you want quality of life, if you want to really live, you must be obedient. Again, the Lord explains why obedience is necessary. For the word of the Lord is truth, he says, and whatsoever is truth is light, and whatsoever is light is spirit, even the spirit of Jesus Christ. The factors that bring quality of life, that is light and truth, are equated with the spirit of Christ. And because he alone controls their dissemination uh, through the bestowal of his spirit, he can stipulate the means by which they are granted. Thus, obedience to his will is absolutely requisite for those who would gain life, especially quality of life. According to the Doctrine and Covenants, this is section 131, all spirit is matter. If this includes the spirit of Christ, then its bestowal upon an individual is an impartation of actual celestial substance, actual element of spirit, producing higher power, higher capacity, higher life. The result of its infusion would be spiritual and intellectual capacitation, which would allow the individual to progress to the point that he could enjoy eternal life of fullness of the glory and truth of God. But the capacitating force of light would have to precede the possession of the celestial substance. Therefore, the scriptures continue. And the spirit giveth light to every man that cometh into the world. And the spirit enlighteneth. I take this to mean gives truth too. Every man, in the, uh, every man through the world that hearkeneth to the voice of the spirit. And everyone that hearkeneth to the voice of the spirit cometh unto God, even the father. Light, that is capacitating power, and truth, that is enlightenment, are received by the acquisition of the celestial element through the Spirit of Christ to those who obey the word. But first comes obedience, then comes light, and finally truth. That's the way the Lord has designed it. Thus all word, light, truth, spirit become united. They are inseparably welded together so that a person cannot be touched by one without being touched by all. Accordingly, the scripture states that my voice is spirit. My spirit is truth. Uh, uh, truth abideth and hath no end. And if it be in you, it shall abound. As noted already, that body which is filled with light, that is the power of God, 
can comprehend all things, namely, it can hold all truth. For emphasis, let me say again that truth is the basis of glorification. Doctrine and Covenants section 93 helps us understand why. In verse 30, we read, All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself as all intelligence also. Then this arresting statement, Otherwise, there is no existence. The very essence of existence is the ability of truth and intelligence to act for themselves. But here we find another one of those baffling scriptures. How can truth which has been defined as uh, defined earlier as light, act. It would be more comprehensible if the scripture said that truth impels or truth causes righteous action. That would make sense. But that's not what the, the scripture says. It says uh, that we are manifest... I apologize. It says that truth comes, or excuse me, that truth acts. And again, I'm baffled. You can see I'm baffled right now, right? Trying to get my, my mind around this. How in the world does truth act? And what in the world is all truth? Uh, 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 is there more than one kind of truth? So what indeed is going on here? Understanding comes from the latter part of verse 30, which states that all intelligence is free to act. As noted above, intelligence is uh, equated with light and truth. But intelligence here is equated with a specific spiritual substance. In verse 29 of section 93, it states intelligence or the light of truth. Notice it doesn't say intelligence, light, and truth. It says intelligence, the light of truth, was not created or made, neither indeed can be, and that this eternal material is the substance from which mankind's uh, spirit is made. Thus, intelligence has two scriptural definitions. One is an abstraction designated as light and truth, conveying the idea of mental acuity, by which existence is cognized. The other is more concrete. It designates the scriptural substance of being, which is called light, the light of truth, and which, uh, of which human, as I said, humankind, uh, which is the very center or essence of the soul of humankind. So the context of verse 30 suggests that intelligence in this instance should be understood in this sense, that is, all intelligence, that is, humankind, as I see it from spirit birth through the resurrection, is free to act within the bounds which God has set. If intelligence then has two definitions, so may truth. The Lord says all truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it. If truth is the knowledge of the sum of existence, then all truth would seem to define existence itself. Thus, all existence, or all animated things that exist, that is truth, have a measure of independence in which it is free to act of this totality. That portion designated as intelligence and expressly associated with humankind is also free to act. Because it is a portion of the whole of reality, it is designated as the spirit of truth. Okay, we'll pause a moment and I ask, do you have a headache yet? Okay, we're, we're going to go on, so I'm going to sum, right? 
All intelligence, as I see it, identifies a component of the spirit aspect of existence. The phrase, all truth, defines the whole of that existence. The condition for glorification is cognition of that whole. Cognition comes only with obedience and the subsequent ac uh, acquisition of light, which follow, uh, uh, then truth follows that as the capstone and the seal. Thus one is glorified in truth. Note that God is the one who sets the bounds and conditions that make cognition possible. He has determined that humans will be glorified only as they receive truth. But a person can receive a fullness of truth only as he receives a fullness of light. Emphasizing this point are the verses that state, Behold, here is the agency of man, and here is the condemnation of man, because that which is manifest from the beginning is plainly manifest unto them, that is, the truth, and they receive not the light or the capacitating power. And every man whose spirit receiveth not the light is under condemnation. Intelligence is free to choose or reject light. When it willfully rejects light, it also rejects truth, and condemnation follows. Now, what we have to understand is the process by which we mortals receive the glory of Christ. The Savior has told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Here, the emphasis seems to be that the only way to gain eternal life is through him, and he explains the reason. Uh, he says the following, I will appoint nothing unto you except it be by law, even as my Father and I ordained unto you before the world was. Going on, he states, I am the Lord thy God, and I give unto you this commandment, that no man shall come unto the Father but by me, or by my word, which is my law, saith the Lord. Here we see the central place that the word of Christ plays in the process of salvation. Man can only come to know God through the word of the Lord, but we have already seen that his word is equated with spirit, light, and truth. Therefore, the reception of the word is the reception of light and truth. The Savior's objective is to bring obedient souls to a fullness of glory. He knows how, for he followed the way set down by the Father. And if we are to receive glory, it will be on the same condition through which Christ himself received it. Christ's glory consists in a fullness of light and truth. Christ was glorified, excuse me, I should say the Father's glory is a fullness of light and truth. Christ also was glorified as he too came to possess light and truth. It did not happen, however, all at once. Again, insight from section 93 states, I, John, saw that he received not the fullness at first, but received grace for grace. And uh, he received not the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness. Here we see the role played by grace in the process through which the Lord received a fullness of the glory of the Father. It seems to have been twofold. First, he received grace for grace, and second, he went from grace to grace. But what does it mean to receive grace for grace and to go from grace to grace? 
An answer lies in the very nature of grace. The word denotes favor, kindness, and goodwill. Out of this comes the theological definition, the unmerited love and favor of God, which, uh, which he bestows upon his chosen ones. The key expression here are love and favor that motivates the father to assist his children. To receive grace for grace is to receive assistance on condition of giving assistance, but not just any kind of assistance will do. What transforms assistance into grace is the favor felt by the giver, which is extended to the receiver. Now listen, even when such service may not be deserved. But grace does not have to be given without condition. Indeed, one of the important aspects of the word is reciprocity. The scriptures state specifically that man receives grace for grace. Thus, the extension of favor is meant to obligate the recipient so that she or he will extend the same to others. As they meet this condition, more and more grace is extended to them, which further obligates them to greater assistance, and so on it goes from one power level to a power, another power level. Apparently, it was necessary for the Lord himself to grow through this process. In order to do so, he first received grace or divine assistance from the Father. This grace he extended to his brother, and as he did so, he received even more grace. The process continued until eventually he received a fullness of the glory of the Father, or all light and truth. The implication of this process is arresting in a very real way the Savior himself was saved by grace. And certainly it is the same with us. The Lord promises the following. If you keep my commandments, you shall receive of his, that is of God's fullness, and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore, I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. Thus, to those who serve, the Lord gives grace. That is, he imparts to them light and truth. That is, capacity plus enlightenment. Let me see if I can sum this up with an anecdote. Again, going back a few decades, uh, I had, uh, was asked to visit with a student. She was not one of mine, non-traditional student, a member of the church uh, for about three years. She was in her mid-30s. She was, uh, being a new member of the church, quite caught up uh, with the idea of women not being able to hold the priesthood and really wondered if there was some kind of equality in the church, what her role was, and so on. Because I was following women's issues at the time, the director of the institute asked me if I would speak with her. Wow, I'll tell you, she was really something. A very, very bright woman, very intense. In fact, as we uh, chatted, I came to the point, I'm going to call her Gloria. I said, Gloria, I'm, I'm really concerned about your passion on this issue. It's going to drive you right out of the church if you're not careful. I remember her sitting back on the chair, the chair and taking a breath and saying, Oh, Brother Draper, I could never leave this church. I know the power of the gospel. And then she told me a story that was heartbreaking. She was the product of an extremely abusive childhood. And when I say abusive, every sense of the word. I'm not going to go into it. I'll let you use your imaginations. In the process... She learned how to lie and how to manipulate, though it did not get her out of problems all the time. It did enough that she really befriended the lie. Well, when she was 14, uh, her mother finally divorced. Uh, they moved to a new city, and Gloria had learned something. 
and that is the lie had served her well, but there was a downside to lying, and that is it cost her friendships. People don't like to be lied to, and they certainly don't like to be manipulated. And so when she moved to a new city and to a new life, she said, lie, I love you, I thank you, you've been wonderful for me, but you're too expensive. I don't want you to follow me into my new life. And so she determined she would not lie. She continued to lie. She lied through junior high. She lied through uh, high school. Finally, she went to college. She said, I'm a big person now. And lie, I thought you were my friend, but you're not. You are way too expensive. I want nothing to do with you. I will not lie. She continued to lie. She met a man. She fell in love with him. He fell in love with her. He recognized her problem, and he said, we can do this together. We will overcome together. But here's the rules. Don't ever lie to me. You don't need to lie to me. She said, with all of her heart and soul, I will not lie to you. And what did she do? She lied. She said, Brother Draper, you cannot imagine my pain as I saw the lie over the years kill the love of my husband for me. But he couldn't quit lying, and eventually he had had enough and went away. Uh, they had had two children by this time in the depth of depression. A knock came on her door, and there was two LDS missionaries, two bright, delightful sisters who said, can we come in and leave a message of hope, which she desperately needed, and so Gloria invited them in. Over time, she uh, accepted the missionary discussions and began reading the Book of Mormon, with which she was absolutely thrilled until she came to one particular scripture. Woe unto the liar, for he shall be thrust down to hell. And right there, Gloria knew there was no hope for her, but there was hope for her boys. So she agreed to have them baptized. A perceptive branch president on the day of baptism, called her into his office and said, why aren't you being baptized? And she lied. Oh, it's all right for my boys. It's not for me. To which he, this inspired branch president, said, Gloria, I promise you, if you will exercise faith in Christ this day, you will receive power to overcome all that is holding you back. She told me with tremendous faith she entered the waters of baptism. And as one of the elders uh, gave her the uh, Holy Ghost and brought her into the kingdom, he said under inspiration, your greatest challenge is lifted from this moment. She said, Brother Draper, that happened three years ago. And from that day to this, I have never lied. So what happened, my brothers and sisters? It is this. Through desire and obedience to the degree she could and love for her children, she made commitment. Light flowed, which gave her capacity beyond her native ability, lifted her and healed her, and prepared her for the reception of the Holy Ghost. God works through the impartation of light and truth. It is my prayer that through our obedience, our loving obedience, and our loving service, that we, too, may be filled with light and truth. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu 
and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.